0: Welcome to Dr. Waffle and Friends,
1: a podcast where we share personal writing and then chat about it.
0: And now for the reading.
1: Lost. There was this time I went hiking and got separated from my partner in Belize in the jungle. I find myself standing alone on a little dirt road, shouting into the empty air, David, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Technically, I'm not lost. I have the map. So I know where I am, but I don't know where David is. I'm not lost. I just lost David. But David has the two-way radio which they give you when you go hiking in the 7,000-acre wilderness in Belize, because there's no cell phone service in the wilderness where things can go wrong, like losing your partner on the shortest day of the year, when it will get dark in a few hours and you're far from the inn and you don't know what to do. Put me in charge of anything in civilization, and I'll gladly take the reins. But my optimistic competence ends at the outer edge of Wi-Fi access. All alone in the wilderness, I am floundering. I know where I am. Nevertheless, I am lost. I cannot fathom how we got separated. I cannot imagine where David is, and I'm starting to panic if I want to get back to the inn before sundown, I need to get moving. So I start walking in the direction of the inn. But what if David is behind me and I'm walking away from him? What if he's hurt? What if I'm not the one who needs saving? What if he is? I call out to him hoping for an answer or at least a sign from the universe. Nothing. I take a few more steps, but No, that doesn't feel right. I can't continue on my way without going back to check on him. I shift out of confounded damsel in distress mode and start channeling Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Brave and determined, I head back into the jungle toward the upper pools, which is the last place I saw him. The day had started out so well. We had breakfast at the inn, and then hiked through trails and creeks and macadamia fields, taking pictures of brightly colored mushrooms, stopping for a snack at the waterfall. Not another hiker in sight. It was a perfect day, just what I had imagined when I booked a room at this inn. I knew David would love exploring nature, and I would be happy to tag along, knowing that a gourmet meal and comfy bed awaited me. However, As the trail brought us into the blazing sun, to dirt roads and across dusty fields, my enthusiasm started to wane, and my hunger, thirst, and fatigue came into focus. David replenished my empty water bottle, but he was running low too. What a relief when we spotted the sign to the secret pools trail, since the staff at the inn said it was a nice place to eat lunch. I was glad to be on the shady path, but it was another 45 minutes along slippery, muddy creekside before we got to the upper pool sign. From there, a steep descent down from the trail via a rough but sturdy rope ladder. David scrambled down, and I followed, pausing to make sure my footing was secure at each rung. At the bottom, We found a sweet enclave where we took off our boots and sat balanced on tree limbs dangling our feet in the water and had our lunch. After we ate David noticed it was getting late so he started packing up. Unlike David I am not a fast hiker. I tend to fall behind when we hike and David has to wait for me to catch up because he knows I get nervous when I'm in nature all by myself. You see David was a Boy Scout and carries a backpack full of first aid supplies. I, on the other hand, am indoorsy and carry a cute little travel bag with my cell phone, lip balm, business cards, pens, and a map. Definitely a map because the main thing I want to know when I'm in nature is how to get out of it. Given our discrepant hiking speeds, I thought, I should get a head start so I don't slow us down. But I had a secret motivation too. We were at the upper pool, and I knew there was a lower pool. I didn't want to miss seeing it, and I was afraid that in a hurry, David would balk at a detour to the lower pool. So although inside my head, I said, I'm going to look for the lower pool. Glancing over my shoulder to see David putting lunch leftovers in his backpack, all I called out was, I'm going on ahead, as I ascended the rope ladder to the trail. It turned out the lower pool was less than five minutes down the path from the upper pool, so I found it easily. I hung my bag where I turned off the path so David would know where to find me. And now I see that this is where we should have stopped for lunch. There's a little hut with a table and chairs and a wooden ladder, making it easy to get into the sparkling natural pool. Dusty and sweaty from the day of hiking, the water looked so inviting. Wouldn't it be nice to take a dip? I could hop in and David would join me in a few minutes. Won't it be fun to go skinny dipping together? And wouldn't outdoorsy David be charmed by my adventurousness? I stripped down and entered the pool. Water nymph-like, I floated around, enjoying the anticipation of David's delight at finding me there. But it didn't take long for our imagined reunion to fade, edged out by my awareness of time passing where's David? Now I'm starting to feel anxious about getting back to the inn. There's no time for frolicking in the water. I climbed back on land, dried myself off as best I could, got dressed and headed back to the trail. David must have missed my here's my bright pink bag marker and went on ahead. Ten minutes more and the trail met the road, but no sign of David. I can't imagine where he is. Is it possible that he's still behind me? It's inconceivable that he's still tucking lunch debris into his backpack or that he climbed the rope ladder and walked at a slower pace than mine. He must be ahead of me. But if so, which way did he go, left or right? Why didn't he wait? Was he mad at me for going ahead? Did he think I got to the end of the trail first and went ahead without him? I would never do that. Would never take off at a crossroad, leaving him to wonder which way to go, carefully inspecting the ground for a message, squinting down the road in each direction, trying to catch sight of me. No, I wouldn't do that. And honestly, neither would he. He wouldn't abandon me here. He knows I have a healthy fear of nature he would recall how losing sight of him on a trail in Yosemite brought me to tears. I figured at this point, the best thing I could do was to stay put. Surely David would presume my distress and radio for help, and the staff from the inn could come fetch me. As long as I stayed right here, visible from the road and at the end of the trail where he last saw me. And so, I sat on a little stone bench, Watching for the vehicle that would arrive to rescue me. I sat and sat and sat. And then I became aware of a physical sensation. And it dawned on me that I was being eaten alive. Not by a jaguar, which is what I worried I might get eaten by in the jungle in Belize. Nope. I was being eaten by noceums. These tiny little bugs that left itchy welts. I had seen the splotchy legs of Taurus at the Maya ruins yesterday, so I knew how dangerous they were. I had applied ample bug spray in the morning, but it was all washed away in my swimming excursion. And, of course, David is carrying the bug spray. The noceums were picnicking on the back of my arms. My thoughts raced. I can't just sit here. I have to keep moving. But if I leave this spot, I might miss my rescue vehicle. I might need to walk back to the inn alone. I consulted the map. I would need to traverse more hot and dusty terrain, low on water, and then I would enter the jungle and I would need to move quickly to find my way out of the jungle by nightfall. Which is why I started down the road, but then stopped, worried that David might need me. This is where I shifted out of fear and into fierce. "'turned around and marched back into the jungle "'to rescue my Boy Scout. "'I am en route to the upper pool, "'worrying that David is lying at the bottom of the rope ladder, "'the sound of rushing water drowning out his cries for help. "'I reach the top of the rope ladder and look down. "'I don't see him, but maybe he's still down there, "'helpless and injured. "'I scramble down the ladder, slipping a little, "'but I get to the bottom. "'See he's not there.' And climb back up to the top. Where could he be? And then it occurs to me. Maybe he's at the lower pool now, floating, naked, waiting for me to join him. I run to the lower pool, but no, he's not there. But what if he was at the lower pool when I was checking for his crumpled body at the rope ladder and I just missed him and now he's ahead of me? I rush uphill back to the stone bench and find no David. But this time, I know what I need to do. If I can't find David, I need to find the inn before it gets dark. My mission clear. I hastily write a note on the back of one of my business cards, just in case David shows up. I walk with determination, staying on the dirt road as long as I can, my wish for a passing vehicle unanswered. I navigate through jungle trails, walking quickly to beat the darkness, but carefully, lest I get injured. The sun has already set as the jungle gives way to open space, but I can still make out the silhouettes of trees against the darkening sky. And then, like scarlet spotting terror in the moonlight, the inn takes shape in the distance. I made it. I quicken my pace and enter the inn, greeted by a relieved receptionist. Where's David? I ask. Looking for you. Please let him know I'm okay. She picks up the phone. I'll call in the search parties. Great. I'm that guest who triggered emergency operations. The manager brings me water Dabs rubbing alcohol on my swollen, bumpy arms, Ask what happened, but the two of us can't piece together how David and I lost each other. As I head back to our cottage, the Wi-Fi kicks in, and I can finally see the text message David sent hours before. It says, I'm here, with a photo of the sign to the Secret Pools Trail. Now I know what happened. When I got to the top of the rope ladder... I turned right toward the lower pools and the end of the trail. David got to the top of the rope ladder probably moments after me and, without a map, turned left back the way we came, not realizing that the trail continued on. When David walks into the cottage, we are overwhelmed by relief and desperate to unpack the past few hours. He had been running down the dark secret pool's trail, calling my name when he got word I was okay. It turns out, we each waited where the trail met the road, but at different ends of the trail. Each went back to check for the other. Each used the tools we had available to make it back to the inn. Each knew in our brain the other was okay, but worried a little in our hearts. For the rest of the Belize vacation, we were completely inseparable. I wouldn't even leave his side in the supermarket without briefing him thoroughly. The funny thing is, when David and I drive around Santa Barbara, we spend an inordinate amount of time discussing which route to take to wherever we're heading. Invariably, we have different ways of going, but they're both good options. We disagree, but we're both right. I've been trying to figure out the lesson in all this. I asked David what he learned. He said, maybe it's that everyone should have a map and everyone should have a two-way radio. Really, I replied. If you don't think there's some lesson about us needing to communicate better, I think you've completely missed the point. We disagree,
0: but we're both right. Thank you so much, Tanya, for that story. That was really, really, I mean, harrowing, funny, interesting. I really enjoyed that a lot. So I guess I want to start with the kind of our standard questions that we agreed we're probably always going to ask each other. And that is the first one is kind of what the impetus was. Obviously, the impetus basically is the story. This thing happened to you. But how long after this incident did you write this version of it? Did you think of it right away? Oh, this is a great story. I need to write it down. Or did it happen later? Or what kind of made you think this would be a particularly good memoir piece to write about?
1: I will say, first of all, my impetus for choosing this story for this episode is that in the last episode, you were talking about hiking. And so I was like, oh, I have to tell this story. So this story and most of the stories that I write, I feel like the impetus is it's that there's an opportunity for a storytelling something. So that's what happened. Um, we had been to Belize. A few months later, there was in Santa Barbara a storytelling thing happening. And I thought, oh, it might be nice to do a storytelling thing. What story will I tell? And so I ended up writing this and uh, then performing it at this storytelling event in Santa Barbara.
0: Yeah, it's really, I mean, it's a great incident. It has like a perfect narrative arc. You've got like the crisis and the drama, the resolution. It's really, um, I mean, it seems like on the one hand, it's sort of an everyday incident. People get lost. But on the other hand, they don't often get lost in the jungle. So it it kind of has this, you know, wonderful extra twist to it that there's actual danger involved as opposed to just being a story about not being able to find your partner about communication or whatnot. So, What would you change about it, about the story itself, the way it's written or told? Do you feel perfectly happy with it? Or do you feel like there's anything that reading it out loud now or looking back on it, you wish you'd done differently or written differently or revised or something?
1: So I was actually like revising it up until like the minute we got on this. uh, Uh recording, (laughs) There's apparently little things that I want to change all the time. So and and I had a writing friend with me uh, visiting for the last few days. So we were working on writing and I got a little bit of feedback. And so I do find that helpful because there are things that so I read it aloud to her and she gave me some feedback about things. And then I went back and I rewrote some stuff. But I do a lot of going back and just reading things over and rewriting some things. I was worried about this story that it would be hard to follow the sort of back and forth, the geography mm. of it, like, where mm-hmm. am I? Where's this rope mm-hmm. ladder, all those things. So I clarified a little bit about that. And then, you know, she had given me some feedback about the sort of my my fear wasn't clear enough in the first mm. round, I had I had not described it well enough. So I tried to sort of do a little bit more uh, saying things about that, because some of this is really um, like, was it actually technically a dangerous situation? I don't know. But I really do have a thing about like, I'm not so comfortable in nature. And I get nervous if I'm in nature by myself. And so I've so so some of it is just I know me so well that I know that this is terrifying. <laughs> but other people wouldn't necessarily know that. And so so it's it's this matter of, like, needing to articulate more and, and say more about um, my internal experience for people to really understand why this was scary to me.
0: Mm. I, I mean, I think you did a really good job of that. So those were good revisions, whatever whatever you changed there. Um, oh, good. The other thing I'll say about changing things is that
1: uh-huh. <laughs> the end of it. So I kept coming up with different endings. So I mm. had sort of there's a the, there's the ending I could just end it as you know like we were inseparable for the rest of the trip but then mm-hmm. there's a sort of little coda that i added on about like what were the lessons that we learned about it you know uh, that we learned from this experience and so i thought well you know i could i could end it either place so i just kind of left the coda on and and i'm curious what you think about that you know because mm. because i'm i have other stories that i've sort of written and i'm like mm, that story's not done because i have four different endings <laughs>
0: Right, yeah. Endings are hard. I mean, there. I. That's the thing I struggle with the most. I. I write and write and write, and I've got all this stuff to say and funny things and bits and pieces and whatever. And then I'm like, well, do I want to end it with a lesson? Or <laughs> exactly right? <laughs> I like. I like it. I like the. I like the lesson, or the. Or it's not even a lesson. It's more like a question about what the lesson is, which I like even more. It's more open ended, and. Um. I mean, it's very like. You don't hit us over the head with this, but it is a a kind of hilariously cliched, gendered uh, reaction, right? I mean, the dude is like... Oh, well sh- well, problem solving. L- next time we'll make make sure we have maps and whatever. And you're like, "I think this is about communication." So it's I mean, it's almost too perfect, right? Is that actually how it really happened? Did you really have that exact conversation where he was like very dude-like and you were more like, "Let's like talk about communicating." <laughs> we really had exactly yeah. that conversation. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not even
1: storytelling, I'm just transcribing. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. No, um I, I totally get that. Uh I mean it sort of felt like just the way the story was written, you know, this is the the vividness of it is like, oh, this is definitely something that happened and you're remembering it and the details. Um I love in particular the detail about the about seeing the inn suddenly against the sky and that kind oh. of feeling of relief. I mean, I felt viscerally that kind of feeling of relief, um, when you're lost and then you see the thing that you're looking for. It's such 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 an incredibly uh, it's like a release, right? That, um, but I liked it being like into to, to Scarlet Sea, to God and with the era. Wind. Did you get the yeah, Gone exactly. with the Wind? Reference? Oh, yeah, <laughs> that was great. Um, so, what's your favorite thing about it? What do you like the most, or what do you think is the most successful?
1: I think what I like about it is that it was it was a really scary experience for me, and and I was I sort of went through this like okay. I, I'm I'm going to do this myself, you know? Like I can mm-hmm. do this and so so I feel like I kind of triumphed in the end and and so that felt good, but it was a good way of like writing it was a good way of processing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, here's this other funny thing about it. Um when I performed it cuz it was performed at this it was Okay, because I live in Santa Barbara. Performance spaces are sometimes wineries. So it was like in this winery, we're like, (laughs) everything's a winery. The
0: dentist's (laughs) office is a winery.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Everything's a winery here. So I'm performing it in this winery and it's, you know, this group of people and I, and I read it. And then at the end, someone said, where's David? Like, is David here? And David just raised his hand and everyone's like, there were all these applause. Everyone was so happy. Because the whole time I'm just searching for him and everybody was like, really, you know, wanting to know where is he where is he and he was there so that was kind <laughs> of great that's awesome i love it yeah. the <laughs> the other interesting thing about reading this now is that this happened a number of years ago and david mm-hmm. and i are no longer together mm-hmm. and i right. so reading this now i was sort of like huh was our problem about communication or about not having the right tools it was actually none of that you know there right. were of course other things and and uh it, it's and and we get along very well now mm-hmm. and i think that we that that this, it really does speak to a lot of different characteristics of ourselves, um, and our relationship. But even more than the sort of difference of views at the end, is just how much we're worried about each other, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I think that there's sort of some, some, um, there's conflict between us in that way of seeing it differently. But I think that there's a lot of really genuine warmth uh, Mm -hmm. there that comes through too.
0: Oh, no absolutely I mean there was never a moment where you're like I'm saving myself you know <laughs> like, which I mean <laughs> to be perfectly honest I probably I'm pro- I don't know, probably I might have gone there because I am well my next set of questions about is about actually how terrified you were because I oh, great. reading this and listening to it I I can't even imagine I would have been really terrified but um yeah I mean that that you know you don't there's never a moment where you're like thinking to yourself I should probably just get back to the end because I can't you know maybe I who knows? But but if he is injured or something, like, I'm not doing him any good out here or whatever, rationalizing that. It was always about trying to find him and help him. And that was really – like, you were thinking he might be injured. And he ob- obviously – thought the same thing because he got a search party out for use <laughs>
1: like, yeah and yeah, he was literally yeah. like running down that same trail calling my name and mm-hmm. it's getting dark i mean yeah we were both very much
0: worried about and you each must other. have kept just missing each other i mean if you could like map this out as a kind of like little schema um right but right? it's actually that we went in different directions is right. the thing right and
1: so 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 there was so he not never a went- way he, he never went the direction that I went at all. At all. And I, okay. And it never occurred to me that he was going to go back the way we came from. But the thing the thing is, as as good as he is in the outdoors, he's terrible with maps. And so I was mm. the map person. Right. And, and so, you know, it was just all kinds of things where I'm, okay. you know, after that, I'm like, make sure you show him the map. So <laughs> like, at least he sees like where you're going. Yeah. I mean, there's right. all these things.
0: That's interesting because I I had actually sort of interpreted, I mean, don't take this as like a problem with this story because I have terrible, terrible spatial relations. I'm like, the fact that I can't follow the space means nothing, right? Uh, It's like, uh, you know, it's a real problem of mine. But so I had been picturing it as, you know, you realized at, at the end, you realized that you had gone in opposite directions initially, but then you were each looking for each other in the opposite place at opposite times. But it, that's not it at all. You never, you actually converged completely and never went back to the same places. Yeah, we diverged
1: so, completely. Yeah. I mean, diverged, I think sorry, yeah, if, not converged, yeah. if there could have been a moment that we had both run back to the to that rope ladder place, like that was, mm-hmm. you know, at the same time, then but but yeah, that because he had gone to the end of the road, and he had waited and then okay, well, and what I didn't include in there is so he was like, okay, I have the two way radio but it wouldn't work from right where he was. So he actually oh. had to go and find like a hill to be at the top of the hill for it to work. I mean, oh my gosh, he was going through his own hell. Yeah.
0: So did he call the search party on the two-way radio or did he go all the way back to the inn?
1: No, he called the inn and they came and fetched him and then then started, you know, then people started searching for me, but by by that point I must have been not on the because there were these little dirt roads, you know, Mm -hmm. and I stayed on it as long as I could. But then I had to get you know, then when I went back to the jungle, so I'm assuming that it was like it took him so long to sort of figure out like to get to his end of the trail took a long time. Right. And then you know, he had to go up on a hill and call them and they came out. And by then I was probably like, not on the road anymore. I was like, traipsing through the jungle. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean. I guess one of the things that really struck me about this story is, like, it's – you're obviously – obviously you were okay because you're here and you're – telling you wrote the story <laughs> and you're telling me about it. I know that you're here, but it, it might not have been that way. I mean, it's like, you know, we all kind of walk around with this – I mean, maybe not all of us, but I think those of us anyway who are, you know, comfortably middle class and, like, aren't in danger a lot of the time or whatever, um, you know, in the global north, walk around – feeling like probably things aren't going to... We're not going to get lost in the jungle. We're not going to get attacked by a jaguar. We're not going to have all these horrible things happen to us, probably, for the most part. And then all of a sudden, you're in a situation where there really is actual danger. I mean, you really could have, you know, slipped and... And injured yourself seriously, or gotten lost, and been attacked by an animal, or you know any other number of things. I mean, people really do die in jungles and and hiking and in the mountains and in avalanches and all that kind of stuff. I mean, <laughs> avalanche and police, but you know what I mean. I'm just I'm listing things here. Um, so yeah, it's like, I mean, to what extent were you really panicked? I mean, really thinking like I could get lost, something bad could happen to me um i could hurt myself or or alternatively that something like that had really happened to david that it was actually kind of a a sort of like a a piercing of that of that skin that we this that membrane that's kind of always between us and actual danger and fe- and fear of death
1: whoa now i'm even more scared to go out in nature
0: <laughs> 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 sorry <laughs> i mean it's, it's, uh, I mean, probably it's more likely that something really horrible is going to happen to you in non nature, right? I mean, getting hit yeah. by a car. Or, oh, no, 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 you know, no. no. Don't stuff, make me but, yeah. now
1: afraid of civilization. Where am I no, I know, go? I, know. <laughs> I know, I know. But
0: I have, you know, I have this, I think I talked about in a previous episode that my flying phobia, right? I love when people try to make me feel better about flying by reminding me of how dangerous driving is. I'm like, that, <laughs> that is not helping. I, I now have more anxiety about other stuff. Thank you. <laughs> Anyway, yes. So, yeah. Yeah, Well, and I think that the thing that's striking to me
1: about that fear is that, you know, like when I'm floating around in the lower pool, and I'm like, oh, this is all fine. Like, like, it was still the same situation where David had already gone, you know, off in the other way. Like, it's like, you don't know when you're in that situation. And Mm. it's only the awareness of like, oh, no, I'm, I'm alone. And I don't know, you know, what's going to happen the as like when that shifts then that's the fear it's not mm. even necessarily um the situation mm-hmm. it's the awareness or interpretation of it mm. and yeah so i mean you know it was this lovely inn i mean you know pricey enough and everything and you know and and really had these great meals and they had packed this like very substantial lunch for us and you know so we were like everything was very um you know, it was like, like, oh, okay, like, bougie wilderness, except that yeah. it wasn't because it was yeah. truly wilderness around. Yeah. And that that's what like, you know, I, I feel like it's sort of like, oh, I'm gonna choose this place in the wilderness, because isn't that charming? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, and then it's then it's suddenly not. So mm, I don't know if that answers your question. But How in danger was I? I don't know, but I wasn't in danger in Yosemite where, like, I couldn't see David for five minutes either. And it really, and I really was crying because I, because, but that's very much sort of me in nature Mm -hmm. is like that. So anybody
0: else might not have
1: that same reaction that I
0: had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like there's something really interesting about that moment where um, I'm just thinking. It hasn't happened to me super often but you know we all have moments where we're suddenly oh my gosh maybe I really am lost or oh my gosh maybe this really is danger mm-hmm. and that kind of shift right um where we spend so much time assuming we're safe and then something like I said that was that that something pierces that skin do you, do you know that book the gift of fear have you ever heard of that book I have I heard of, of that book I can't think of the guy's name it's so I mean now I feel like I'm recommending a book that I don't remember very well, and maybe it's terrible and awful and horrible, and maybe it's been he's been cancelled. I don't know, but i was, I remember reading reading about it years ago and then starting to read it. I read about maybe a quarter of it, and i couldn't I couldn't keep going because it was very upsetting like it's very his but it's it's basically like this book by this guy th- I think he's a like a military or police dude, like, you know, who's got training and like self-defense techniques and all this kind of stuff. And the thesis of the book is that, you know, this is why I think he might've been canceled or that maybe this is actually a terrible book to be talking about because the thesis is something like, you know when you're in danger. And of course, this is addressed mostly at women, right? Women in, in terms of like protecting themselves and paying attention to signals around them or whatever. It's like, you know, he interviews all these women who had terrible things happen to them, right, um, assaults and whatnot, and murder attempts. And they they talk about how there's a moment where they, their body is telling them that they're in danger, but their minds are like, oh, this can't be. And, of course, we're socialized to think, oh, I can't, like, act afraid in front of this man because it's embarrassing. I can't and punch
1: I my date.
0: Yeah, exactly. I don't want to make him feel bad about it. You know, whatever. So you ignore the signals and that, that in every case, the women were able to look back and say that was the moment when my body was telling me that I was in danger, but I tried to ignore it. And I wish I'd listened to that. So he calls it, that's why he calls it the gift of fear,
1: mm-hmm. is that if
0: you can learn to tune into that moment and actually like, you know, throw all of your inhibitions and socializing to the wind and say, no, I'm going to listen to my body and listen to that instinct. Um, The reason I think it might be kind of a bad message is I think it can kind of shade over into victim blaming. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like if you took that thesis really seriously, you might end up with the conclusion that like, oh, well, you should be able to tell when you're in danger. And if you don't and you've ignored, then it's your fault. I don't – he doesn't say that, but I think that it could be taken that way. But anyway, the point – I'm sorry, I'm nattering on and on about this book – is um, I'm kind of intrigued, like, in your story, like, what is – is there, a, is there a, that tipping point where you think – or it sounds like maybe you, the incident in Yosemite is even more so, where you just suddenly are like, oh, this is actual potential danger. Like, this is now not a joke anymore. Um, or, you know, when I don't know if I told you this story when we were talking about the flying thing, but when we came back from New Zealand in May, um, Scott and I, we had a, we hit clear air turbulence. Did I tell you this story? Mm mm-hmm. Oh, so, you know, all my years and years of intense flying phobia, nothing even remotely bad has ever happened to me. I've never had an, uh, even, like, a, a scare, like, never, like, the oxygen mask dropping or anything, nothing, to perfectly fine flights. And we hit clear clear air turbulence um, about 30 minutes into our flight back from New Zealand, and it was freaking terrifying. I mean, it was like, um, you know, the plane going up and down hundreds of feet. Um mm. You know, really severe turbulence. Like people were like, their like drinks were flying. Everything was flying everywhere. Oh people were screaming and praying. I was screaming. It was like that kind of. And after it was over, it went on for about 15 or 20 minutes. It was hor- absolutely horrifying. After it was over um and it was clear that everything was okay, I started shaking really hard, like really uncontrollably. And um and I guess that's a physiological response, like you're mm-hmm. you're literally trying to get the adrenaline out of your body. So anyway, this is all a very long way of saying I'm just um that I'm fascinated by this question of like when do you when do you feel acknowledge like, that you're afraid and that you may be in danger? Um, what happens physiologically and like how much of that of the story is like retrospective? Uh, uh you know kind of turning it into a more coherent narrative, like, was it maybe more chaotic? Or was it? Or do you remember clearly, kind of the feeling of, oh, this is actual danger, or things might actually be going wrong here? Yeah. yeah. And and I think some of that
1: is saying, it felt scary. Like, Mm -hmm. it felt Mm -hmm. scary to me. And actually, like, some of the worst of it was not literally not knowing what to do. Like, I don't know what to do here. And yeah, and so, so that there was that, okay, so I'm going to tell you now, my friend gave me some feedback. Because one of the things that I was doing, like when I was walking back through the jungle, is I was listening to Michelle Obama's uh, memoir. Oh, nice. I popped in my, my earbuds, and I had it on my phone. So I was listening to it. And she's like, you know, that makes it sound like you weren't as scared. And I was like, yeah, but actually, for me, like that helped it to feel more normal. Like it mm-hmm. helped it to feel more like I'm not out in the wilderness, because yeah. here's Michelle Obama saying encouraging right. things to me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for
0: Michelle. <laughs> I know. She and yeah.
1: Barack are going on their first date, and I'm going Aww. with them. And so all of that like helped to soothe me. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I could have said all that, like we decided with this, I either needed to take it out, or I needed to say more about it to give some yeah. of that context. Yeah. So for me, sort of something familiar and and really civ- that felt more like civilization was kind mm-hmm. of grounding to me, even though she's like, but then you couldn't have heard if somebody was calling to you or if there's, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but that's what helped me feel better. So in my experience, it's not even necessarily like, how much in danger am I really? Because mm. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't know how much danger I was in really. Right. Um, but, uh, but it's how scary it feels to me. Yeah. And then what's, you know, what's going to help me is not necessarily the thing that's going to make it less dangerous. Like Michelle Obama in my ears is not making it less dangerous, but right. it felt better.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's really, um, I mean, the same thing with the clear air turbulence. Sorry, it's really hard to say that phrase. Clear air turbulence story mm. is, it turns out I read about it later. It's not actually dangerous. It's just terrifying because you're, you know, these huge um, uh, swoops up and down in the mm. air, right? Um, and it's the same, it sounds like the same thing with your story. Like there, there wasn't a jaguar and there wasn't really, you know, there wasn't like somebody... Going to attack you in the jungle, and you, you know, there was you didn't fall and hurt yourself, so you weren't injured, and you could walk back fine, and everything was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really the perception of fear, like that's in you know in all these cases, it's like our our bodily reaction and that kind of um, that adrenaline, all of those things that happened in our bodies are. Not impeding us, but they're they're just dumb. They're like, you know, they're they're like overreacting or something, or we're we're feeling fear when we don't need to. Which is kind of like the opposite of that gift of fear thesis, which is you should always be listening to your to your body and and paying attention. But sometimes our bodies are really stupid. Well, and I guess
1: that's I feel like like you know, it seems like our conclusion might be it's just kind of all over the place. Sometimes you feel fear when it's not dangerous. And Mm. sometimes it's dangerous, and you either don't feel the fear, or you're not um, paying attention to it in that way, you know? Yeah. So sometimes you, you know, you feel more fear than the danger Mm -hmm. um, indicates, and sometimes the other way around. And I don't know. It's funny, because I'm not afraid of I think that my greatest fear of flying seems to be that I'm gonna starve or be bored because I always (laughs) bring lots of food and things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But but I do know that after I finished like writing my living trust, so like, if I died, you know, everything was going to be taken care of. When Mm -hmm. I did that, the next time I flew, even knowing that I'm not like, I'm probably not going to die in a plane crash, I'm much more likely to die in a car. But the next time I got on a plane, I felt more relaxed when the plane Mm. took off, because I was Mm -hmm. like, well, all right, if I die, at least, you know, I know who's going to get my car.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i'm I'm always about like i do i need to clean anything out like what <laughs> like i really i mean i never have time to do this of course but like whenever i go on a trip i think oh man like you know if, especially if scott and i are together like if we both die on this trip it is just a mm. nightmare this house like i can't even begin like are people even going to know what to do we we also have living wills and regular wills and all that stuff but like yeah, the the level of detail that we'd have to go into, it's just going to have to, somebody's going to have to burn it down. Like, that's just, you know, it's just like, get rid of all this stuff. There's nothing really valuable here. I think the conclusion we've reached here is that um, there are, like, really huge civilizational buffers between us and all of these, not just dangers, but discomforts and, you know, and all of these things that, like... Even just the idea of them not being there is is kind of terrifying in a way. Um, yeah, I also I, if maybe one last little question, and that is, mm-hmm. I I I love the this is not really a little question, but I love the way you started with the story, the the sort of philosophical. Question of what it means to be lost. Like, are you lost if you know where mm-hmm. you are but the, you don't know where the other person is, or you know where you are but you don't know how to get where you want to be? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, there's so many different ways of being lost, and I just thought that was a really interesting point that you weren't even really sure if you could define it like that. And there's something about this story too that's like you aren't ever actually lost. You know exactly where you are. You knew exactly where the inn was. It was more just this kind of in the context, it felt like being lost because you couldn't find your partner. Um, do, do you want to say a little bit about that kind of philosophical question? Sure. And that's some more of what I
1: expanded on when I when I revised it mm. some was that, um, and I realized actually through the writing of that, that because at first like i had called this lost from the beginning you know that mm-hmm. was the name of it but it was right. really about you know trying to like find each other and stuff what i what i realized then when i wrote it more was that the lost it was an internal feeling mm. of just being flummoxed like i don't know where david is and i don't mm-hmm. know what to do and i think right. that that more than anything else was the lostness and I am a really competent person and mm-hmm. and that is that is something <laughs> that I I pride myself on. I can figure stuff out. I, you know, I make decisions if there's if there's like seven people and and we're getting a pizza, I can figure out, you know, I will I will interview everybody about what are your dietary restrictions and preferences <laughs> and I can I can problem solve that. You know, I I'm good at things like that. So for me to be like I don't know what to do and I don't know how to figure it out. Like I don't mm, know mm-hmm. how to how to get to an answer. That I think um really felt so lost for me internally. Mm, like I've lost right. my internal compass of mm. like literally where to go, you know, physically and or geographically, but also mm-hmm. just even how to decide.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I like that. The sort of the metaphorical sense of being lost rather than necessarily the literal technical one. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. Um, I guess we will see you all next time on the next episode of Dr. Waffle and Friends. Thank you for sharing that story. Really, really great.
1: Thanks so much.
0: Listeners, if you liked what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and share so more folks can find us. You can follow us on social media at Dr. Wafflepod, that's D R Wafflepod, all one word, or email us at drwafflepod at gmail.com. Check out the show notes for websites and other info. Thanks for listening.